So, uh, so this, this example probably won't relate to, to many of you at all, but that's all right. It relates to me, and that, that's a good enough parable for me in my heart. Uh, so sometimes when you're playing like a video game and you've just completed a quest, and then you go back to the person that had given you the quest, they give you a choice of like three rewards that you can choose one from, I, anyone know what I'm talking? Maybe someone. You don't have to raise your hand if you're embarrassed. Uh, but typically, that choice is is optimized. There's an optimal choice to make. Something, a, a trinket, maybe a, a, a piece of armor, right? Something that's going to make your character better, more of the character that you've been making them to be. All right. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about. It's fine. Uh, sometimes the choice is completely superficial. Or, or preferential. It's just simply a new color of some flannel shirt you already had, right? And so it's like, oh, I guess I like that one. It doesn't matter what I choose in that instance. But many times there is an optimal choice. There's a min-maxing that you do as a player where it's like, I've been building my character in this design or framework this whole game, and of these three items, this is the one that improves my build. This is the one that makes my character better and more what I wanted them to be. The numbers are better as far as DPS, damage per second, or whatever you're looking at, okay? Uh, and then other times there's items that are clearly in contrast to your character's design that works against what you've been optimizing all along. And you're allowed to choose that reward and you might still have fun playing the game. It's just a poor choice. Like, where it's like, I guess you can have that, but it wasn't the best choice. It wasn't the best reward that you could have chosen. And so today we're going to look at a question that Jesus asks, and he's asking it in this hypothetical, uh, rhetorical way. And he asks this question, what reward do you have? And in, in this case, he's actually using the question to, to suggest that uh, it's a scenario in which you've merely broken even. All right, like that you didn't go above and beyond. You didn't go the second mile. You just did what was expected. And he's like, well, what reward do you have? Like, why are you expecting a reward at all if you were only doing what was merely expected of you? All right, I'm going to use this phrase a little bit more generically and support that use of the phrase uh, as we look at some other scriptures today. I'm going to kind of, instead of just saying, what reward do you have, I'm going to use it similar to, what reward do you choose? Or what reward will you have? Because it turns out we do have a choice in the rewards that we select for ourselves in this life. All right, it's kind of an unusual thought, but nonetheless, it works. And so I'm going to look through a variety of rewards that you are perfectly able to choose. Like, you could just be like, this is the thing that I'm designing my whole life after. But it's also possible that the choice you're making is just suboptimal. Less than great, right? What good is it a man to gain the whole world and to forfeit his soul? Like, you could make those choices, but it just wouldn't be the best choice, the best reward that you could choose. What well, one of those rewards that you could choose in this life, that you could design your whole life in pursuit of, the Bible calls fleeting pleasure, in which you're just simply seeking after the things that your body naturally desires and craves, right? You're just going after comfort or laziness, right? Or lust or gluttony, whatever it might be. And it's just like, that's the thing that I want and I'm just going to go for it, 
right? Paul described those who live this way as being those who have their God is their belly, like the thing that they serve, the thing that their whole life is in worship of are the natural cravings of their body. In Hebrews 11, it describes reminiscing on the life of Moses. It says, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather, right? So he made an intentional choice. He had a couple of options before him, and this is what he chose, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered, right? He calculated, he optimized, he, he determined which was going to be better for his life, right? And he, he chose to be mistreated. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. All right, and so I, I do want to point out, some people criticize believers saying like, well, you know, like Christians are only doing the right thing or the good thing because they're doing it for some reward, but some people just do the good thing because it's the right thing to do, and that's a, a more idealistic type of altruism, right? A type of, of generosity. But I want to suggest that Moses was able to make wise choices for his life because he was considering the outcome, because he was looking to the reward, right? Yet we should do the right thing because it's the right thing, because Christ has transformed our lives, because he's demonstrated such great love for us that we now conduct ourselves in a completely different way than we used to, right? Jesus is worthy of our lives and our love and our affections, okay? And so we should, that's a sufficient reason to live differently and do these things. But if we aren't looking to the reward, sometimes we might be gravitated towards the appeals and the cares of this world and make poor choices when we're no longer in that moment thinking about Christ and his worthiness of our lives and our praise, right? We might make suboptimal choices. We might choose fleeting pleasure rather than lasting treasure, right? We go for this short gain and an eternal loss. And it's easy to fall into that trap, and so it's worth looking to that reward. Sometimes in making this poor choice, we can be shortchanged in the reward that we select. If we look primarily to this life to satisfy us, to bring us joy, right, to, to be all of the meaning that we're hoping for, this life is going to disappoint us. Right? Jesus in the four seed parable described those who initially, when they hear the word of God, they receive it with joy. But then as the cares of this world or the deceitfulness of riches choke them out or or, or they give up on it, the moment there's persecution that arises on account of the word of God. And so they choose something less. They surrender the word of God. They give it up in order to avoid persecution, in order to avoid some degree of additional suffering, right? So they they choose a a reward that is shortchanging them. And the change that the word would have produced in them is also short-lived, right? And so we want to choose a better reward than simply the fleeting pleasures of this world. Moses had uh, appraised these two rewards, and he determined that, that what God could offer him was greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. And so some of it comes down to a matter of accurate appraisal, appraisal. Right? Like, what am I going to do when it's just me and God and I could just choose to completely seek after my own heart's desires, as Ephesians describes, the deceitful desires that are at work in all of us? Like, am I going to just choose those when I'm no longer thinking eternally? 
when I'm, when I think no one else is looking, right? It's like, Hey, I think I could, you know, if I could mix and add a little bit of sin in my life, maybe I'll get that fleeting pleasure and right. This hopeful reward in the future, right? But, but what are we going to choose? Uh, Think about Moses. He made that choice thousands of years ago. Do you think he regrets his choice today? That he chose the reproach of Christ? That he chose these, these greater treasures compared, or greater wealth compared to the treasures of Egypt or the fleeting pleasure that he could have had? Do you think he has reward remorse where he's like, ah, shucks, I got duped. I was tricked. Like, oh, I should have. I wish thousands of years ago I chose to just live in Pharaoh's house. Right? I could have had such a more convenient life. No, he doesn't regret it now. And he's not going to regret it millions of years from now. He chose well. He chose well and we can too. Are we willing, like Moses did, to delay gratification in this ultimate sense where we're even willing to defer portions of it for our entire life on this earth in order to make a wiser choice? There's another type of reward that we can seek, or I guess it's not even a reward. It's kind of just breaking even in which whenever we are kind, whenever we are generous, whenever we are loving, we're doing it in a reciprocity sort of way. We're doing it only to those who we think will pay us back. In almost like an eye for an eye sort of way, but in the sense of kindness or love or affection. All right, that that we choose to, to care for only those who we think will care for us. In Matthew 5, Jesus describes it this way. He says, for if you love those who love you, What reward do you have? All right, that's where we get the text from this question. So I am giving you the appropriate context. Don't worry, here we go. Right, if you love only those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. And so what Jesus is describing here is that there are those who live where the the kindness and love and generosity they give is calculating, it's selective, it's a filter in which they are identifying and determining like, I think I'm going to get back from this investment from even that individual. And if I'm not, I'm going to choose to back away and not show kindness, right? It's expecting payment back from others for any deed that is done. In Proverbs 23, 6 and 7, I really like this image. It says, do not eat the bread of a man who is stingy. Do not desire his delicacies, for he is like one who is inwardly calculating. Verbally, he's saying, eat and drink, he says to you, but his heart is not with you. And so this is reciprocity. It's giving only to get. It isn't genuine love. Right? If a person at a party they're hosting is counting every chicken wing on someone's plate and trying to figure out how much do I get to eat when, they go, when I go to their house next, like that's not genuine love and care and hospitality. Right? They're planning on exacting the same amount from them later. They're, they're going to tax their friend in the future and possibly with interest for any generosity that they give now. Right? This isn't true love. Their heart isn't with you. And Jesus suggests that there's no reward for this kind of generosity, right? This is a transactional kindness, and it's breaking even. There's there's no gain and no loss, because you were able to get back exactly what you gave. In Luke 22, 12, Jesus said this, He said also to the man who had invited him to to a dinner party, 
when you give a dinner banquet or a banquet, do not invite your friends or brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors. And this is like a weird warning. He says, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. Jesus is saying that in, in like this grievous sense, like, ah, oh, they invited you back. Ah, oh, that's too bad. I'm so sorry that happened to you. Right? Like, that's not what we would think. We'd be like, oh, this is great. Right? Like, I, I'm super excited about this. But Jesus is like, ah, it's, it's really unfortunate. That's, that's too bad. Verse 13, but when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Why? Because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. And I want to point out, Jesus isn't saying that it's wrong to be hospitable. All right, like family and friends and fellowship with believers is a good thing that he gives in this world to be enjoyed. All right, the believers were meeting house to house and in the temple and the synagogues and devoting themselves to prayer and the apostles' teaching and breaking of bread. Like they were doing these things. This is a good thing you're allowed to enjoy. Right, like if you have the means, like, yeah, invite someone back if they've invited you. That's not a bad thing. But Jesus is describing this, uh, this calculating generosity and hospitality that the world has, in which they only or merely seek to invite people that will be able to repay them. And Jesus says that's an unfortunate thing when that happens. Jesus describes a generosity that is working to intentionally avoid repayment, in which you're trying to dodge and juke your way out of being noticed, out of being rewarded, out of being repaid for any kind thing you've done, right? And so it's as if we're trying to avoid earthly blessings in order to preserve those which will come at the day of the resurrection, is what Jesus says. And he, he seems to hinge on this idea that if you experience the earthly ones, that's too bad you might now miss out on this eternal blessing that God would have given you instead. And so it's kind of like a weird idea. It's this breaking even in this life. Another reward choice that we could select is admiration from others, right? In which we appear to have a reputation or a self-righteousness in which other people might celebrate us in some sort of way. And you can choose this reward. Jesus, he's like, he basically says, hey, you've got your reward. This will happen to you. You can live your whole life trying to appear like a great person in the eyes of other people and seeking their accolades and their praise instead of God's. In Matthew 6, Jesus says this, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. Like, you can perfectly live your life getting that reward by presenting yourself to other people or only doing good when others are watching, right? Or, or just presenting yourself on social media in such a way that, right, you'll always be celebrated and, and people will be excited about you and they'll pay you in the currency of likes and hearts and whatever, right? Like, it's possible to live that way. And Jesus is like, yeah, you can, have, you can have that reward if you really want it. But he's saying that's actually an unfortunate thing. And you shouldn't be choosing that reward. That you should avoid that if possible. Verse 3, But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. 
right? And so there's this assurance that our father, our good father, will see what is done even when no one else does. And that we can, by faith, trust that he's aware that he is pleased, right? And he will reward for all of those things that are done in secret. And so Jesus suggests that we should avoid seeking the praise from others and reserve the reward from our our father specifically. Verse 5, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and, and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they've received their reward. And I realize this is a little bit ironic, like we're doing church outside next to the street, right? And we're praying and we're praising here. But if we're looking to be seen by, by others for our own glory and our own credit, you can have that reward, right? That could be the thing that we brag about, that we boast about. I hope that our motive is different, right? Our motive is that, right, God's light would so shine before men that they would glorify our Father in heaven, right, when they see the good works that we do, or when they hear the gospel that we proclaim, that they would place their hope and trust in Christ, right? That's the real reason why we're doing this, okay? It's not, it's not so we get to look good, right? But there's that temptation, okay? Uh, he says in verse 6, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you, all right? You can Choose God's reward or the world's reward and be praised by others. And what's weird is our human hearts are so screwed up that even something like generosity and prayer, right? Something that's expressing a relationship with God can be done in such a way where he's like this trophy spouse where it's like, I actually don't care about you. I just care what I look like when, I'm, when it looks like I have a relationship with you. Right? It's like this way in which we don't actually care about him. We care about what people think about us when it looks like we're with him. Right? And so it's like this weird way that our hearts are crazy corrupted. And so it's worth thinking about this. And so instead of extracting this reward that we desire, instead of trying to get the praise from other people, right, we should fully trust that God sees when no one else does and he will reward us. Verse 16, and when you fast, don't look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, right? That their fasting may be seen by others. It's like, look how religious I am, right? Oh, no, I'm fasting, you know, like trying to like really like go and tell everybody that that's what we're doing in order to get their praise. And Jesus says, truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. That's a perfectly legitimate reward to select, and you can live your whole life getting it. That's what the Pharisees did, right? They, they looked holy and righteous on the outside, but inside they were, they were full of death, is what Jesus said, right? Like, you can live your life that way, and you'll get that reward, but it is not a lasting reward. He says, but when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Verse 19, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. And it's easy to read that and think primarily about wealth, but I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about. He was just talking about these earthly rewards all in the context of praise from other people, pleasing people as being this earthly reward that you could seek. Although it does, he ends up later on talking about living your life and loving and worshiping money, mammon, 
Okay, and so it does also apply to those things. But the point that Jesus is making, he's like, listen, let me be your financial advisor. Right? Let me give you some wisdom about the wealth and the treasure that you seek. He's like, you don't want to live your life investing completely in this worldly market because this is a bubble that's going to burst. This treasure will fail you. This treasure will rust and corrode. If you're living only for the, the fleeting pleasure of sin, or if you're living only for the praise from other people, that will run out. Right? Any titles that they can give, any way that they can celebrate you and right, throw a party in your name about your philanthropy or whatever you've done, is like that stuff will one day be all forgotten. And none of that will matter. Right? A thousand years from now, no one will remember the title that you got. Right? Or the, the thing that people celebrated about you. Jesus suggests like we shouldn't aim for earthly treasures. We shouldn't seek these sorts of things because this is temporary and will not last. Verse 20, he says, instead, let me tell you where you should really invest yourself. Let me tell you the sorts of things, the market that you should really be looking at right now. He says, lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. He's like, listen, this reward will last. This is eternal. It will not fail you. He's like, this is the life that you want to live. You could select the lesser reward, but you're going to regret it. It's going to fail. And he's like, in that whole time you're experiencing it, you might have all of the dopamine rush and everything going, and you're like, this is so satisfying to me. But eventually that satisfaction will run out. Instead, he says, seek that which, which will never fade. Seek the affection and approval from your Father, the very God who made you and loves you. Verse 21, for, he says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so regarding the things that we desire, the rewards that we select, it can be evidence of what we love, whether our hearts belong to this world or our hearts belong to our Father. Right? If, if everything I desire and pursue is, is placing my hope in the uncertainty of riches or placing my hope in, in what my, my flesh tells me I want or what I think other people want from me, if we're repeatedly choosing earthly rewards, it's likely because our hearts belong to this world. And we slip back into that mentality so easily and it requires daily bringing our hearts before God. And reminding ourselves to seek first his kingdom, his glory, and, and wanting his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Right? That it's not us building our own kingdoms. And if we persist in choosing the rewards of our Father, right? The, his love, his affection, his, his care, his blessings, it's evidence that our hearts belong to him. That our hearts belong to God. A little bit later on, Jesus makes this point in verse 24. He says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. In the context of my analogy with the video game thing, it's basically saying you only get to pick one reward. You can't be like, oh, this is easy. I pick all three, or I pick these two. We don't get to do that. Jesus is like, you can't live for these earthly rewards and the eternal rewards at the same time. It's one or the other. You don't get to pick both. 
And so often we, we might uh, realize that there's this earthly reward that's appealing to us and this eternal reward that's appealing to us. And then we just choose to ignore what Jesus tells us here and be like, no, Jesus, I think I can do both. Like, I'm pretty sure I'm going to just like ride the fence and, and I'm going to get everything that my heart desires. And that's not true. Jesus is like, you can't pick both. You can only choose one. And so, what are we going to choose? We can't, we must choose God over money. We must choose our Father over praise from others. We must choose Jesus over the fleeting pleasure that sin offers. Right? We must choose one. And the longer we deceive ourselves into thinking we don't have to choose, it's evidence that we've already made a choice. Now, what's interesting is, even when we do what's right, and it's not in the sight of others, there's still someone there, and it's us. Right? Sometimes, we can be doing the right thing merely for the pleasure or satisfaction or joy that we get. Sometimes, we as humans do good, and we only do enough good in order to feel good, and not in order to make an impact in this world for God's greatness. Right? Like, we're, we're just like, well, like, I, you know, I'll, I'll write a check, but it's like just of an amount to get, kind of shoo the person away. Like, I, I wasn't really interested in whatever charity you were about. Like, I just kind of wanted to look good, but I'm not interested in actually making an impact. Just enough so that I can feel good in this moment. And like, this is like a really subtle, tricky thing. Right? This is like super deceptive in the way that our hearts react. Right? We are still in the room anytime we do the right thing. And sometimes we could be seeking the reward of our own feelings, our own satisfaction. We could be seeking our own praise. And it's a weird way to think about it. And the way Jesus addressed it, he said, don't even let your, your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Right? That at some point, like when you do a right and godly good thing, you shouldn't be doing it for yourself either. In Romans 15, verse 1, it says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. It's possible to use your strength to serve others and outwardly you are accomplishing something great and the whole time your motive is self-worship. Your motive is your own ego. And it's like, that's scary. And like, that's something like you'll be tempted with your whole life. And right, we just got to like confess to God, like, God, I don't, I don't think I even genuinely was loving that person. I think I was loving me and loving feeling good about myself. It says this, let each of us please his neighbor for his own good to build him up. Right? Is our intent to actually bless the other person or to bless ourselves? Verse 3, for Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. And so if we serve others to please our own selves, we are treating our self-perception, our own egos, as our God that we worship. We are making the opinions of ourselves the ultimate authority. We are, we are desiring to, to worship us, and this is the same trap that Lucifer fell into. Right? He'd ceased to worship God and began to think of his own self and his own throne that he felt he deserved. It says in Isaiah 14, and this is kind of like this duplicitous text where it could be describing an actual king and region while simultaneously describing this spiritual realm and this individual Lucifer. Isaiah 14, it says, How far you, or how you are fallen from heaven, O day star son of dawn. 
how you are cut down to the ground, you who laid nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. The stars of God is actually uh, Elohim language talking about other spiritual beings and that he wants to have authority over all the heavenlies. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. And then in response, the prophecy says, but you are brought down to, the, to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. And so it's easy for us to fall into the same trap as the enemy in which we make ourselves God. We make ourselves and our thoughts of ourselves being the thing that we live for, that we want to satisfy. And Jesus, in contrast, lived and, and served not to please himself. Sometimes what's, what's weird about this is our doing right to please ourselves is a way of alleviating the, the conviction of God in other areas of our life. It's a way of, of uh, maybe trying to ignore a guilty conscience where maybe we are blatantly disobeying some instruction or command that God had given us. But to try to like ignore the, the voice of the Holy Spirit where it's like, well, I don't want to do that at all. I'm just going to do my own thing. But maybe I'll just go out and do some good things and then I'll feel good about myself that I can ignore the fact that I'm, I'm disobeying God elsewhere. Right? We can try to convince ourselves, see, like, I am a good person. I don't need to obey God over here, because look at, look at this, what I'm doing. It's easy to, to fall into that trap. We can do good for the sake of, of feeling good, and this, and this is humanism. Right? And, and it's, it's tricky trying to navigate training kids and, and teaching them, like, because it's like you want to celebrate when they do something selfless, and that can be an initial thing to lead them down this good path. But you want to eventually make sure that they're not falling into self-righteousness, right? We can be glad that good is being done by people who may have the wrong motives. Like, that's kind of a weird thing to think about. But the Apostle Paul even celebrated that there were those who were preaching the gospel for wrongful gain, out of selfishness, out of competition with others. And Paul still rejoiced. He's like, listen, like they are screwing up their lives. But oddly enough, they're still declaring the truth of God's word and people are getting saved. And he's like, so I can kind of rejoice over that, even though it's unfortunate. They're going to miss out on so much of God's blessing and his will for their lives because they're doing it for all the wrong reasons. And often this is exposed to us by the very word of God. Right? The word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. Right? Piercing and dividing joint and marrow and soul and spirit. Right? It's able to inspect all the motives of our hearts, that sometimes we can read something in the scripture and look into the mirror and realize like, oh man, I was doing the right thing, but it was all for me or it was all for show. And so we don't want to fall into this trap of self-righteousness. What's interesting is uh, Paul alludes to the fact that Jesus taught, and it's not found in any of the gospels, that Jesus taught it's more blessed to give than to receive. All right, that there is this joy that we can receive when we obey God's instruction. All right, I think we looked at that either last week or the week before, where Jesus taught that like by believing and, and obeying the truth, we experience his joy in our lives that we can't find elsewhere. Okay, and in Acts 20, Paul says this about his life. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. And he's actually saying goodbye to his friends and kind of commissioning and equipping the elders of the church in Ephesus in this moment. 
And he's reminding them, he's teaching them. He's like, this is how you're going to have to live. He says, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all these things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, what's interesting in this moment, I'm like, all right, so like, did Paul just lose his eternal reward? Because he's reminding his friends about some of these good things and godly things that he was doing on the earth. Maybe. But at the same time, he wasn't doing it to boast. He was doing it to teach and instruct and to be a godly example in their lives. And even if Paul, say, lost the eternal reward for all of this extra work he was doing to meet his needs and those of his friends and those who were in need... Maybe he counted the cost and he's like, you know what? I don't, I don't need that eternal reward. It's more worthy to me to teach right and to do right and to, to lead these men right that they would live in the same way, that they would work hard as unto the Lord, right? And so it's okay to be a godly example. It's okay to seek to glorify God in our good works. It's okay to stir one another up in good works. And maybe he ends up getting an eternal reward for right teaching. Who knows? I don't know. But either way, it, it's true that it's more blessed to give than to receive. Do we accurately assess and appraise this blessing? Or do we fall back into the strategy and habit of, of just hoarding and keeping and trying to like hold on to everything and refusing to let go? Are we like that stingy, inwardly calculating host of a party, right? Where it's like um, counting every little chicken nugget you've got, right? Now, there's this other thing that Jesus indicates that we should live for. It's that there's this eternal reward from our Father. And, and oddly enough, we don't just have this eternal reward. Sometimes it shows up in this life. In Luke 18, 29, he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, all right, not for the sake of our own selfishness or not wanting to care for our family, all right, that's not what he's describing, He's likely describing moments like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7 when maybe one spouse is a believer and the other isn't and the one who isn't a believer refused, refuses to remain right, with those who follow Jesus. But either way, it's for the sake of the kingdom of God. Okay? Uh, and he says this, that anyone who is sacrificed or lost in order to live for God's kingdom, he says that who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come, eternal life. And so what's interesting here is that we can experience God's blessing in this life when we live for the sake of the God's kingdom and in the life to come. This is similar to when Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all of these things will be added to you. Right? When we make the priority seeking God, he takes care of our needs. When we make the priority seeking our own needs and desires, we end up missing out on both. And so what's interesting is that God does many times throughout our lives bless his kids when we're here on the earth. Right? I've got a little inequality here, right? Sometimes we get both the eternal reward and the earthly reward in this life. And that's bigger than just merely the earthly reward that we were seeking. All right? When we choose to seek first his kingdom and surrender momentarily our earthly rewards. He ends up sometimes giving us both. 
All right. And when I grew up in the church, that was the version of Christianity that we really clung to. It's, it's attractive, right? It's like, oh, I just want, I want blessings later and now. This is going to be awesome. I'm just going to get everything that I want. But sometimes it's just the eternal rewards that the people of God get. And that's okay too. All right, sometimes we suffer in this life and what we suffer in this life is not worthy to be compared with what is yet to be revealed in us. Sometimes the people of God choose persecution and being a reproach of the people in order to follow God, and that's a good thing. Jesus says it this way in Matthew 5, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. That sounds unfortunate, but yet Jesus is saying, great news, guys. This is awesome. When you're getting persecuted, when you're being reviled, when people are saying false things about you and ruining your reputation, he's like, man, that is a blessing. (laughs) Right? Like, that's not how we count rewards. He says, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets before you. In Hebrews 10, describing these people of faith in the Old Testament, (coughs) it says this in verse 32. Recall in the former days, actually, oh, this is uh, in that church age. 11 hits the Old Covenant, sorry. But recall in the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those who were so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. What? Like, what is this talking about? Like, these, this early church, right, that the letter of Hebrews is written to, were people who were persecuted, who lost some of their own possessions. It was plundered and robbed from them. And it says that they joyfully accepted the plundering of their own property. And how did they do that? Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. It's like, I'm more than happy to lose what's on this earth when I know that it's not going to last. And that there's a better reward coming. And the reward that's coming is going to last eternally. He says, therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have, no need, you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. And so he describes that even in the early persecuted church in this moment, he says that, that you, you suffered, you experienced imprisonment, you were related to those who were experiencing those things, and you were robbed and you joyfully accepted these things because you had a right perception of reality. You realized that there's a reward that is a better possession, an abiding one, and it is great. And in order for us to live a faithful life, we must be willing to joyfully accept the plundering of even lesser things, right? That's counterintuitive. That's not how I try to optimize, right, in my mind, the things that I think are going to bless me, at least not in my flesh, right? And so, so this is the idea. He says that the eternal reward is greater than the earthly reward, all right? That's what he's indicating here. And so using uh, the subtraction property of inequality, I took away the earthly reward from both sides. And I'm left with still a true statement, okay? All right, don't worry about the math. There won't be a quiz. And I'm left with this, that the eternal reward, even taking away the earthly reward, is still greater than zero. It's still something to be excited about. 
It still is a gain and a blessing and an abundance that will forever last. Okay, so, so even if we lose all earthly rewards, but have the eternal one, that's still a huge win. So much so that we can be blessed, we can rejoice, we can praise God, we can joyfully accept the loss of the earthly reward because it's like, holy cow, I'm, I'm, I'm making out on this deal. This is incredible, right? And like when you realize that, it's like, I can like the early church that the book of Hebrews is written to, rejoice. This is the better deal. I don't want to select the earthly reward only and then miss out and have less overall. No, I can choose to live for this greater and lasting reward. Verse 37, for yet a little while in the coming age will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but are of those who have faith and preserve their souls. And so even when we encounter difficulty and suffering, right, we don't want to shrink back in our faith. We remain faithful to God. We trust him. That's what faith means. And God is pleased when we live that way. He, he describes in Hebrews 11, those who many times in the, in the chapter 11 of Hebrews, it talks about those who received miracles and blessing and abundance in their life because they were faithfully living for God. But the back half actually talks about those who suffered, who never experienced or received earthly blessings. They didn't experience the promise of God well on this earth. And that's okay. It says this in Hebrews eleven thirteen. These all died in faith, not having received the things that were promised. But that's okay. We weren't looking to this life to satisfy us. But having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, they're like, this isn't my home anyway. This isn't what I'm living for. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Verse 39, it says, And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, you and I, right, we should not, they should not be made perfect. And so what's interesting is, even if we never see a payout while on this earth, we are looking to something greater. We, we are not home on this earth. We are looking to a better country, a city made by God. We were not looking to this life to satisfy us. And so it may appear as foolishness, when we're joyfully surrendering, right, and, and experiencing the plundering of our own possessions. It might look like foolishness to everyone else, but we weren't looking to this life to, to give us the blessings, right, in that case. We're looking to what God is yet to do. And this is what, what Hebrews 11.6 describes, and I realized I kind of altered the sequence of a bunch of Hebrews 11, but you can read it on your own time. It says this, And without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe two things. One, that God exists. And two, that he rewards those who seek him. Right? That's how we come to God. 
right? God is pleased by our faith, and we have to believe these two things. It's easy and likely for us many times to believe some false version of God. Where we've come to him, we believe that he exists, but we carry with us all of these misperceptions from our past. And slowly over time, the word of God reveals and exposes those things. And sometimes we've come to God not believing that he's generous. We've come to God believing that he isn't a rewarder. Some people come to God and think somehow that he's stingy. But that's not the case. Do you realize that God gives us breath and life and everything? Right? Do you realize that, that God withholds no good thing from the righteous, it says in Psalm 84? Right? God is the source and the, the loving Father who every good and perfect gift, it, it, He is the one who gave it. He is the one who gave you every good thing that you've ever experienced in your life. God is not stingy. And God is a rewarder of those who seek Him. And as far as His abundant wealth that He pours out so generously on us in Romans chapter 8, verse 32, it says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The best gift that God gave was Christ. Right? The, most, the, the biggest reward, the biggest treasure, the, the most abundant blessing that God could ever give you is relationship with himself. And he was willing to completely lay that all out when Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And so now anything less than Christ is pocket change in his mind. And he's like, oh yeah, gladly. Yeah, take the rest of it. Who cares? He's like, I've already given you the best thing I have. And that's the reward that we want. We want our treasure to be God himself. He is the gift. We need to seek the one who is the gift giver, not seek after the little things that he happens to give us. And that's what it says in Acts 17. That God's desire for the nations of the world, all peoples, is that people would seek God and feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is not actually far from each one of us. God desires to be found by those who seek. God is a treasure that you can experience in your life. And it, he is this lasting relationship. He loves you. He made you. He has a plan and a purpose for you. Right? And he's preparing a place for you that where he is, you can be also. That is what God desires. He is a rewarder. And the greatest treasure he can give you is himself. And so when it comes to rewards, what reward do you have? What reward do you choose? Are we going to this week choose fleeting pleasure? Are we going to choose the praise from other people? Are we going to live for our own satisfaction and our own ego and opinions of ourselves? Or are we going to seek the will of our Father, seek His approval, aim to please Him, and seek the treasure that only He can give, the great reward, this lasting reward from our, our loving Father? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for all that you've done. We thank you for your abundant blessings that you give us when we don't deserve it. That Jesus, you demonstrated your love for us when you died for us. While we were still sinners, while we were your enemies, while we were ungodly in every way. 
And Lord, we, we realize this great gift that you've given. And Lord, help us to remember and celebrate and rejoice over what you've already done for us. Let us be reminded of the fact that you've given us this blessing and that even if for the rest of our life we don't experience earthly blessings, we still have sufficient cause to worship you for all of eternity. Lord, help us to not focus on the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches which will disappoint us. Help us to live for you. Help us to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. Remind us of the truth. And Lord, may we experience blessings, yes, in this life from you and also the life that is to come. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.